Hello, and welcome to our event today at the Cato Institute on John Mueller's new book, The, Stu the Stupidity of War. Uh, John Mueller has been an eminent professor in this domain. He has many towering achievements, and it's a great that we're here today to celebrate particularly his latest book and his quest to challenge conventional wisdom. Uh, we're taking questions today from any medium that you're watching, so we'll be able to uh, filter the questions right to me. Um, you can also use the hashtag CatoFP, and they will be filtered up to our um, application. Uh, today on the panel, we have John uh, Muller. Uh, he is a senior research scientist at the Mershon Center and uh, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We also have Martha Crenshaw, who is Emerita Professor at Wesleyan, and also the Senior Fellow Emerita at the Freeman's Goli Institute. And finally, we have Christopher Fettweiss, who is a professor at Tulane University. And uh, I am the moderator, Brandon Valeriano, and I am a Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. So with that, I'm gonna kick it off to John Muller to start us off, and he can tell us a bit about his book and his work. So John, thank you. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Brandon. Thanks for putting this all together. Uh, the book is basically a, what might be called a biography of an idea that war is really pretty stupid. Let me try to share a screen here, hopefully successfully. Uh, this is the idea that war is, uh, as Dwight Eisenhower put it, war is mankind's most tragic and stupid folly. Um, and a similar sentiment being voiced by Norman Schwarzkopf some years later, as you can see. Uh, basically, it's an idea that grew over the course of the 20th century. Um, and uh, we now are in a position where it basically seems to have been, become at least semi-universal, at least as, as the way I've defined it. Um, uh, Europe, for example, where, where this started, used to be the world's wars, most warlike continent. And uh, it has not had a significant international war for 75 years. In fact, it has had not had a, it, it, you have to go back forever to find a, a similar period. In fact, since uh, the word Europe was invented 2,500 years ago, uh, there, there's never been a period of peace like this. So let me uh, look at some data here. I'd like to define, first of all, what I'm talking about when I talk about war. Uh, war is, is a very fairly standard uh, concept in which uh, the assumption is that uh, it's not a war unless there are a thousand battle deaths or battle-related deaths in a single year. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about how you might want to modify that in a minute. Uh, but this is the pattern since 1945. As you can see, there have been a fair number of civil wars, the, the two things on the top, civil wars with invention and without outside intervention. But the number of international wars has been really quite low. Some of them have been pretty bad, but uh, they, what has happened mostly is that after Europe and essentially the full developing world decided not to have international wars, direct international wars, other countries caught on as well. Israel used to have several wars with Arab states and doesn't anymore. And India and Pakistan used to have direct wars and don't anymore. In fact, if you look toward the right, the black line, black thing at the bottom is the number of international wars. Uh, you can see there's been basically very few wars, like two, in this entire century, the 21st century. Uh, both of them were created by the United States, the attack on uh, Afghanistan in 2001, and the attack uh, to remove Saddam Hussein in, in 2003, after which, of course, those wars devolved into something other than an international war. Um, 
Now, I don't want to say that all that if war is declined, that warlike behavior has declined. Uh, in other words, we're not quite ready for that dove. Um, there are still interventions. People are dealing things. Countries are doing things which are um, warlike, but they're not doing wars. They're not uh, entering direct wars with each other. There's intervention in civil wars. There's various economic sanctions, which can have a deleterious effect. But uh, uh, overall, there have been a large number of border conflicts since since World War II, um, maybe uh, 50 to 70, uh, in which one country tried to seize territory from another country. But overwhelmingly, these conflicts were ones in which they only attacked areas which were unpopulated and ungarrisoned. In other words, they're trying to keep them from becoming wars. So there's sub-war wars. There's, there's one between India and Pakistan, I mean, India and China about a year ago. Uh, the people still poach fish. They shoot bows across, shoot across, uh, they fire shots across bows. Uh, they support terrorism. They engage in espionage and stealing secrets. That's been going on forever and it continues. Some effort at sabotage and occasional assassination. Uh, as in the Middle East, uh, there's been uh, use of the cyber to spew disinformation and propaganda, hardly a new phenomenon. Meddling in elections, the United States has meddled in dozens, scores of them since World War II, and so have a number of other countries. And they're also at covert uh, regime change. So those, are, those, are, can, those definitely continue, but I don't consider them to be basically wars. Um, and the thing I think is really, essentially what's happened is, it seems to me, uh, states have given up the idea, for the most part, of using war as a method for getting what they want. And I attribute this mostly to changing attitudes toward war going back uh, basically 100 years. Uh, as Michael Howard, the historian, said before 1914, war was almost always universally considered to be an acceptable, perhaps an inevitable, and for many people a desirable way of settling international differences. Um, and these are the kinds of, it's very easy before World War I to find people saying this about war, this beautiful, noble, progressive, uh, redemptive, and so holy, and so forth. Uh, peace, on the other hand, they tended to find materialistic, effeminate, selfish, stagnant, for, uh, filled with frivolity, uh, uh, utter emptiness, bovine content, my personal favorite, and death. Uh, now, what I find what I found is extremely easy to find people who said that before World War II, before World War One. For example, uh, there's a, a journal I just sort of thumbing through from the 19th century, and there's an article in it called "God's Purpose by War" by a theologian, and this is what he says: "War evokes the best qualities of human nature, giving the spirit a predominance over the flesh." It's easy, extremely easy to find that. I give you hundreds, even thousands of examples. Um, Okay, now what happened with World War I was that attitudes changed. Uh, Arnold Heinbe points this out and marked the end of a span of 5,000 years during which war had been one of mankind's master institutions. Uh, and other political scientists and, uh, and uh, historians uh, say similar things. Um, and so the question is, why was World War I so important? Why did it do that? Well, it wasn't the most destructive war. There's been millions of destructive wars. Uh, in, in which one side is annihilated, completely annihilated, for example. Uh, World War I was hardly unusual in its stupidity. The Greek and Trojan War was fought over an errant wife, lasted 10 years, and ended up with the total destruction of Troy. If you want to find a stupid war, check out the War of 1812. Uh, World War I was definitely unromantic, uh, but it was not the first war in which it had filth uh, and dysentery and leeches. Uh, they'd been around forever. 
Uh, there was a uh, economic development in, in Europe during that period of time, uh, but it, uh, and, and as it's sometimes called a European miracle, but it really didn't have much of an impact, obviously, in attitudes towards war, as I've already tried to demonstrate. The only thing that seems completely unique about World War I was that about 20 years previous to it, there started for the first time in history an organized uh, peace movement. There had been individual peace people forever, um, and, and the Quakers and stuff like that. But this is the first time there had been organized activity against, the, uh, against war. Uh, it was a movement that was growing in strength, but it's very much a gadfly movement. At the end of the war, that what happened was the World, World War I, uh, um, uh, everybody was in the peace movement. So there's a concentrated effort then to get rid of international war. We don't want to do that anymore. There were a couple of problems with that, obviously. One was Japan, which was not part of the consensus. Uh, it learned its lesson in World War II. Uh, and the other was uh, Adolf Hitler in, in Germany. Uh, my, my position basically is that uh, the one with John Keegan at the top, only one European really wanted war, Adolf Hitler. In other words, if he hadn't been there, World War II wouldn't have happened. Whether you buy that or not, nonetheless, after World War, uh, after World War II, uh, uh, the, the earlier attitudes had been very much reified. And since that time, there's been a concentrated effort to, through institutions like the United Nations and so forth uh, to eliminate international war. And they've largely been effective, it seems to me. Okay, this is my last slide. Um, what, we, what I'm trying to argue is that we reached a sort of a, cult, a, a culture or society of international peace in which, again, it only means that international, international states, the states, countries, do not use direct warfare as a way of settling their international differences. They do use other things, which I already went through. Uh, that, that some of the consequences seem to be this. One is that international status now doesn't come from winning wars as it once did, uh, but from putting on a good Olympics, having an economy that works really well, sending a rocket to or toward the, the moon. Um, as you know, the two countries that enjoy enormous status are Japan and Germany, neither of which uh, came out too well uh, in World War II. Uh, whether you need the concepts of power, influence, and maybe honor anymore, uh, may be uh, questioned. And the whole idea of using a system or structure to explain uh, international relations strikes me as being unhelpful. What it is is a, it's a, a society of states, juridically equal, um, but not otherwise equal. Uh, and uh, they just try to, they try to get along and they just don't use uh, war to, to enhance their prospects. Um, in addition, if there really is a position of international peace, international trade is facilitated. Uh, that is to say, if you're not going to go to war with somebody, you might go over there and see if they've got something you want to buy or something you want to sell. Um, and uh, so it makes it easier. But international trade did not bring the peace. I think the desire for peace brought or facilitated international trade. Something could be same, similar said for democracy. Democ democracies, if you're not going to fight a war, you might be thinking about getting rid of that tyrant uh, who's been uh, trying to protect you. Um, it also means that there's no real need for a large standing military. You might want to keep some in reserve in case, uh, you know, a rise of another Hitler or something like that. Uh, it also means, but, but not, not necessarily huge ones, numbers, anybody, United States or anybody. And nuclear weapons are substantially irrelevant, as they were during the Cold War. Uh, it seems to me the Soviet Union never in a million, jillion years wanted to get into another war. The fact that the next war might have nuclear weapons was basically irrelevant. 
anybody who, uh, you know, jumping from a 50th story window is probably a lot more terrifying than jumping from a fifth story window. But if you enjoy life, you don't do either one. Um, and uh, the whole idea that, that the peace has been kept by the United States, where the liberal world order, I think, mostly has things backwards. Um, uh, basically, what you got is a bunch of countries who want to work out the rules of international order, uh, given that we're not going to use wars against each other. We have to figure out fisheries. We have to figure out about trade. We have to figure out about other institutions and so forth. But the institutions are the thing that come out of that negotiation. They, and they don't cause the, the, the condition, it seems to me, of world order in the sense of lack of international war. Uh, the, the coal and steel community was formed, for example, in 1950 uh, between Germany and, and, um, uh, and uh, France. And the basic idea there was that we want to have these economies intertwined uh, so that they can't go to war with each other. Well, since 1945, as far as I know, there's never been a single person in Germany or France who's gotten on top of a soapbox and said, you know, we used to get into wars all the time. That was really great. Let's do it again. I mean, there's nobody that's ever said that. So the idea that the peace between France and Germany is caused by the coal and steel community is absurd, it seems to me. Basically, it's the desire for peace that caused the coal and steel community. And that is the same for other institutions. And then finally, uh, so we got, it's kind of a situation of anarchy. Uh, and maybe that's, um, maybe this is too libertarian here, uh, but maybe that's a good condition in this case. If everybody gives up the fact that they don't want to use war, then maybe the anarchy, not having a world government is a fairly good idea. Uh, you need institutions and they can, and they, you know, in agreements, but countries can pull out of them anytime they want. Anybody can get out of the United Nations anytime they want, as Britain's shown, it can get out of the, the common market. Um, and then finally, um, there's, uh, I think, overwrought concerns about a lot of things. Germany, I mean, uh, 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 um, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, uh, they are troublemakers and they're problems, but I don't think war is in, in, the, in the offing. Uh, all of them, uh, particularly China and Russia, are trading states. They need the international environment, and nobody in those countries has real Hitlerian ideas about taking over the world. Similarly, nuclear proliferation is a pain in the neck, maybe, but it's not very important. Uh, if you have nuclear weapons, if you don't, it doesn't really make that much difference. Terrorism has proved to be something of a, of a, of a, of a minor uh, or, or, a, or a limited issue uh, compared to the way it looked after 9-11. And cyber also is just a poor man's way of fighting wars. If you can go over and interfere with elections, if you can add to the heap of nonsense that is part of every election, uh, you're, uh, uh, you, you can do so. Um, so basically, these are some of the things which I think come out of this basic idea that uh, war is not an acceptable or desirable or a sensible way of conducting international affairs, international war. Okay, I'll stop with that and turn it to other people. Great, thank you. I think next we'll go to Martha Crenshaw from Stanford and Wesleyan University. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much. Well, uh, I really enjoyed John's very brief presentation of the book, The Stupidity of War. Uh, I will say that every time I see that there is a new book out by John Mueller, I always welcome it. I know that we're going to have something provocative and well thought out and uh, bold in the sense of challenging prevailing assumptions of what we think about things. 
I was reminded uh, indeed by a lot of John's work of a presidential campaign some years ago when John Kerry uh, was audacious enough to say that our policy should be to treat terrorism as a nuisance, that if we could reach a stage where it was merely a, a nuisance, not an existential threat, we would have made progress in terms of our foreign policy. And uh, it was a very costly thing to say in terms of his political prospects. Uh, John is the sort of person who will say these things and say them boldly and present a very strong reasoning behind it. Now, I'll also say that I have more than an academic interest in an argument about the stupidity of war. Uh, I think unlike many Americans today, I have had experience with the U.S. military. My father fought in World War II, uh, was lucky to come home alive and unwounded. Uh, a number of my classmates, however, were drafted for the war in Vietnam, and some did not come home. Uh, my own son served two tours in Iraq in the National Guard. So I have a very strong interest in the subject, and I'm very inclined to be favorable toward John's argument. But I want to raise some questions about it for the sake of debate. And my questions have to do really with looking forward. Where do we go here? Where? How should we think about these things? So I'm, I'm encouraged to believe that there is a culture of peace that there is an aversion to international war that seems to be something like the famous nuclear taboo, that it's not something that is so material or power-oriented. It's a case where simply the, our identity tells us that this is something we, we would not do, we do not do, we don't expect it of others, we don't expect it of ourselves. It has a lot to do with image and perception and psychology. So if we accept that, what do we think going forward? I think this is a particularly timely discussion uh, because of the decision on the part of President Biden to actually withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan on the 20th anniversary of the 911 attacks, uh, which he appears uh, quite committed to doing despite the advice of his military leaders, which has always been to keep at least a residual force in Afghanistan for fear of collapse. Uh, as John has pointed out in his book, this reminds many of us of Vietnam, uh, where we fought in order not to lose. Uh, in the end, we gave up and we pulled out, and I think we're all quite familiar with what happened in 1975, uh, which we then quickly forgot. Uh, we forgot the war in Vietnam. We forgot counterinsurgency. We reinvented it for Afghanistan and then somewhat later for uh, Iraq. But my question is, why does the culture of peace, the aversion to war, not carry over to the military interventions that are now the major form of warfare, intervention in civil war? Civil war has certainly overtaken international war and just generally civil conflict because I share John's um, uh, almost implicit doubts about the definition of a civil war as one that requires a thousand battle deaths. We have an extremely high amount of conflict that never quite reaches that level, but it's deadly and often very deadly, particularly for civilian populations. So how do we develop an aversion for that and why don't we have an aversion? And that raises a question to me uh, that there are other drivers of conflict and intervention and the use of military force beyond 
sort of a cultural aversion to the use of force, a cultural aversion to war. And I think in particular, the role of very strong bureaucracies, such as the American military. Uh, John quoted Dwight D. Eisenhower. He also coined the very famous concept of the military industrial complex. Uh, we have a very large military. Uh, there's bound to be a self-interest on the part of military leaders. Now, often it's been military leaders who who counseled caution and restraint in the use of military force, but we do have forces in being, and it's very tempting to use the forces that you have. Uh, if it's special operations forces, if it's counterterrorism forces, uh, we've got them. We have drones, the extensive use of drones now as a counterterrorism measure. Uh, discussions now that post-Afghanistan, we're going to have an over-the-horizon counterterrorism policy, which will be a sort of standoff policy. But there's certainly no suggestion that we will give up on the use of military force in terms of dealing with civil wars and dealing uh, with terrorism. So how do we explain why we seem unable to resist the temptation uh, to intervene? Uh, there are certainly under the Bush administration, the interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq were justified in terms of a global war on terrorism. Uh, many of us from the beginning had some doubts about the wisdom of calling it a war on terrorism, terrorism of international reach. Uh, it seemed to be far too expansive in terms of the threat. And as John has pointed out, in many of his works, we seem to have an exaggerated threat, an exaggerated sense of our risk from certain types of violence and conflict that are out of proportion to the reality of the threat to us. Uh, we, we have compared, for example, the threat of terrorism to the threat of Hitler in World War II. And thus appeasement has always gotten a very bad name. And I have to admire John for his, uh, his courage in advocating appeasement and complacency, which is bound to raise the hackles of, uh, of people who are uh, more in favor of uh, deterrence and uh, uh, not giving in, uh, not showing any sign of weakness, uh, fondness for the uh, domino theory. But what really is what continues to drive these sorts of interventions, there are humanitarian pressures uh, on some occasions, but we resist them on others. Uh, when do they cause way? When do bureaucracies push us into war? Uh, another factor here that uh, I think that John doesn't mention so much in the book, but is something that concerns me, is the shift from the draft to the volunteer army. Uh, many people have argued that once we shifted to the so-called volunteer army, a composition of armed forces began to change. And most Americans now uh, hardly know anyone in the military. They don't feel uh, a personal connection to the use of the military abroad. And therefore, the argument runs. It makes it much easier to use force uh, in intervention, in intervening in civil wars, in pressure, in counterterrorism uh, sorts of uh, offenses. I don't know how we get beyond this threat exaggeration. I would be very happy to hear if John has ideas. How do you get leaders? And the problem appears to be leaders more than the public. How do you get them to accept a realistic appraisal of threats and to communicate to the public a realistic appraisal rather than hyping the threat? Now, the next thing people would point to, of course, is excessive partisanship. And I think that's a factor as well. I don't know how to restore 
a sort of nonpartisan, bipartisan foreign policy in the U.S., but I think this would be a helpful step forward as well once the use of force abroad becomes something that is contentious that one political party or political faction uses against another party or faction to put one side on the side of the brave, the other side on the side of the cowards who don't want to stand up for principles uh, and for rights. Uh, how do we, how can we overcome that? So I guess I feel that sort of pessimistic. I tend to be sort of pessimistic and skeptical in outlook in that there are a lot of barriers to the spread of a culture of peace and of aversion, at least to the use of force. Uh, over time. So I will conclude on that note. Again, uh, I recommend the book uh, to all the listeners and participants in this seminar. I think you'll find it challenging, uh, provocative, and thought-provoking. Thank you. Great. And with that, uh, well, first off, I'll note that we're getting a lot of great questions, so keep them coming. I'll get them through the, the filtering service we have. And next, we turn to Christopher Fetweiss from Tulane University, who's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Chris? Thank you very much, Brandon, and thanks for inviting me to talk here. Brandon's asked me to try to contain my comments to about three and a half hours, right? So I, I'll do my best, no guarantees. But in, I'd just like everyone to know that in 1989, John Mueller predicted that we would see, as the Cold War was ending, he said that we were, are going to see a gradual diminution of warfare. That we're going to see war come to a... Uh, a lower level, all kinds of war, interstate war, ethnic conflict, civil war. As the Cold War uh, comes to a close, with the, if we don't have the Cold War powers jumping in on either side and making things worse, uh, we're going to see a gradual decline in war. And that was against the grain at the time, because many people were saying we were going to see clashing civilizations or coming anarchy, in the words of uh, Robert Kaplan, a uh, very well-known political scientist, John Mearsheimer, said we would soon miss the Cold War. John was right. Well, as we've seen over the course of the last 30 years, is a, is a decline in all kinds of warfare, all, all kinds of violence. And Steven Pinker has been making that quite uh, well publicized, well known in the last couple of decades or in the last decade or so. But so I sort of read this book with a bit of a sense of frustration in, in a way, because uh, I agree with almost everything that John writes. Uh, and and uh, I wonder if he was thinking it sometimes that I, I just wonder how many times he has to tell people this and make these kinds of points. I have had many conversations with people in the policy community or scholars over time who say some version of this that say, you know, uh, John's probably right, but what are you going to do? Uh, you know, what, what, what can we do about it? Or just sort of saying, look, I'm going to continue on either researching or practicing exactly as I had before. It's not going to affect what I do or how I think. Just the fact that war seems to be disappearing over time. Uh, and it's frustrating uh, to some degree because this is the most important process, the most important trend in international politics in, in certainly my lifetime, maybe ever, uh, that we are seeing so much less warfare than ever before. And the implications of that are what John is dealing with in this book to a large degree. And he's also coming up against a wall of beliefs. Uh, it's not just that he's asking you to change your ideas about international, how international politics works or the proper role for the U.S. and the United States and U.S. power, but he's asking people to question their most basic beliefs about what is right and wrong and how the world works. And beliefs are different from ideas. Uh, it's easy to change ideas, but beliefs are more connected to who we are. They're emotional. They're not just intellectual. 
And when people ask you want people, when people ask you to uh, to change or reconsider your fundamental beliefs, oftentimes people react with anger, with frustration, uh, and because often the beliefs are connected to our identities, and to some degree, our beliefs about the international system and how politics works are also connected to our identities. So it is very difficult to get people to change the way they think about, and even according to what we think is a, a unfolding evidence that John continues to be right after 30 years of first making these kinds of predictions. Uh, and one of the kinds of beliefs that he asks us to change or to consider is this notion about the utility of complacency or appeasement, as Martha mentioned, in, in, as a tool of U.S. grand strategy. Uh, we appeasement is a dirty word now because people, un, unfortunately and un, inaccurately, think that without a peace, British appeasement in the 1930s, Hitler would never have the idea to attack Poland. It was going to happen anyway. Appeasement didn't do, didn't cause it, and you can make a better case that British policy was actually wise to appease the United States over time uh, and and hand over essentially toss the baton of some type of global leadership to the United States through appeasement, but. Just ask yourself about the notion of complacency as a tool, turning around the uh, state, the old saying of don't just stand there, do something. What if the United States default option was more like don't just do something, stand there? What if we weren't able, weren't so eager to get involved in matters that we barely understand? I like and I tell students all the time a, a quotation from a former speaker of the House, a guy named Thomas Brackett Reed who, uh, when he was advising the president about a crisis in Venezuela with the British in, eight, in 1890, said, there's a good rule in politics. When you don't know what to do, don't do anything. Do nothing. Did we know what to do in Syria? If Maybe you did. I didn't. And so there's a pretty good rule. When you don't know what to do, don't do anything. Were that our default option, what would the world look like? How would it be different? Would war return to various parts of the world where it seems to have left for now. Uh, there's a very firm belief in U.S. policy circles that without U.S. power, that without U.S. military deployments and the size of the military and U.S. military spending, the world would devolve into chaos. And John makes a pretty good case in this book that it's not just the belief in the, in the U.S. power is what stands between the world and chaos, but U.S. wisdom. There's this belief in U.S. policymakers that the rest of the world can't figure out what to do, can't figure out that, generally speaking, living in peace and trading is better than fighting each other, were it not for the United States. So it is not just U.S. power that is that makes us indispensable, in the, court, in the words of, um, of, uh, of our former Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, or as, which also implies, as John points out, that other countries are dispensable. But it's not just our power and our military might that makes us indispensable, but our wisdom. What if that's not necessarily the case? What if we're not actually doing much by policing the world? What if we are actually not as wise in some of our, 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 uh, our decisions and, and our viewpoints as we think we are? Uh, it, it's one of the ideas that comes up in John's book and it comes up in some of his other writings recently is this notion of the Costa Rica option. And it's fun to talk to have a, a sort of a, a thought exercise about this. What if, just what if for now, for fun, the United States were to cut its military spending by about 90%. Costa Rica, Panama, some other countries do not have an active, do not have standing militaries. What would happen if we did that? What would happen if rather than spend $750 billion on our military, we spent about the same amount that Vladimir Putin does every year? Would we be less safe? 
Would some other countries suddenly start wanting to attack us? Would we, would we not be able to police the world? Uh, we could, in most years, uh, except for the last few years, that would erase our budget deficit. It would uh, free up money for, you know, whatever your political beliefs are, whether tax cuts or health care, I don't know, a gigantic ice wall, Game of Thrones style at our southern border, whatever you want, we'd have a lot more money for it. And would we be less safe? There is a fundamental belief, another one that John uh, uh, questions about. In this country, we tend to think that there's a direct relationship between spending and safety. The more we spend, the safer we are. What if that's not true? What if we are spending a heck of a lot uh, that we could cut way back and be equally safe? What if that relationship doesn't actually exist? There's a lot in this book, especially in my favorite part of the last uh, 10 pages or so, there's an appendix of that essentially lists questionable foreign policy beliefs over time in the United States and asks us to question, ask ourselves, are these really true? What are the, what are the foundations for some of these assumptions we've always had that are, aren't necessarily backed up by much? Uh, and it seems to me if, if it, it, you know, every review of this book is going to say, oh, these ideas should really be taken seriously. And then people go right back to what they were doing. Were these ideas actually taken more seriously? Were we more comfortable with questioning our own beliefs? We would have a, a better foreign policy, a less expensive one, and maybe we maybe we would be just as safe. Now, uh, I don't want to just praise everything. There's there's one sort of mild critique I have, and it's not really a critique of of, of this book. And I'll sort of close on this: is John's basic notion from the uh, the title sort of implies that because war is stupid, it's unlikely to happen or it shouldn't happen. I am somewhat less convinced of that because I think, especially the last four years, American politics has convinced and reminded me that people are stupid. And just because something is stupid doesn't mean it's not gonna happen. At least enough of the time, enough of us are stupid that it doesn't necessarily mean that just because even if we all recognize that an activity is dumb, that it's not going to happen. I think it was General Pershing after World War One. Uh, some a reporter had asked him, "General, why does war happen?" And he said, "Well, that's a stupid question. War happens because men like to fight. As stupid as it is, men like to fight. Stupid activities occur. I live in New Orleans. Mardi Gras is profoundly stupid, and it's going to happen every year. It's, it doesn't it's the stupidity of it doesn't stop it from occurring. So even were we all to recognize the stupidity of war, that doesn't mean we're going to recognize too that it's unlikely to happen. I think it's." I think it's still, uh, I agree completely with John about the trends, and I recognize the empirical uh, evidence that says the war is in a, in a much lower state than ever before. I'm not sure it's related to its overall stupidity. Maybe if more of us sort of came to the note, came to agree about its stupidity, it would be less frequent. But I also have a decreasing uh, confidence in my fellow human beings about their aversion to stupidity because we've seen too many stupid choices over the last few years. So uh, just close with the notion that if you haven't read this book, you should. If you haven't read John's other books, you should. He challenges conventional wisdom in ways that are, are not only interesting and thought-provoking, they're also funny and fun to read. And that is such a rare trait in my field. I can't tell you how many boring, influential books I've read. John Mueller is incapable of writing a boring book. And you will have spent your, your time would be well spent uh, sitting down with this one. Great, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to let John Mueller uh, reply for a minute, but I, I want to summarize a few points. And one, I'm getting a lot of questions uh, following on what Chris, uh, what Dr. Fetlife was just saying right now 
about human nature. So I, I was hoping John can address the issue of human nature and uh, the propensity of humans to fight wars throughout history. The other thing is um, uh, one of the anonymous commentators uh, brought up uh, public opinion. And we have seen the public obviously uh, tilt towards war, especially lately. And uh, John, of course, has done a lot of work on public opinion and warfare. So I would like him to address that issue and to bring us back around on his work and what his work says about um, the nature of warfare and its continuation um, in relation to the public's desire for war. So with that, I'll turn it back to John. John? Okay, well, let me begin with a bit of uh, the human nature thing and then go to the uh, public opinion. Uh, people have always said that uh, people, that, that, as was said before World War I, uh, people fight because they always fight. Uh, and it just seems to me that it, that basically isn't true. Uh, the, people, the same argument is used about slavery. It's a human nature. Some people are born to be slaves, some masters, and it's been there for all of history. Nevertheless, his, uh, formal slavery died out in 100 years. Uh, and I've, as I've indicated, uh, there's, been far, there's far fewer wars than there used to be. Uh, Europe, Europe used to be, well, Thomas Jefferson called it a, a, an arena of gladiators, and it isn't anymore. No one would think about that anymore. So it, things can go away. The bustle went away, didn't come back. Uh, dueling went away, didn't formal dueling, it didn't come back. Uh, in terms of public opinion, and this also gets into some of Martha's points, and thanks very much for, for, to both commentators and, 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 of course, to Brandon, um, it seems to me that uh, the Vietnam syndrome basically lasted. In other words, after being clobbered in Vietnam, uh, the American military and the American people stayed away. There was a thing called the Vietnam syndrome. And it lasted throughout the rest of the century. Um, the policy there, I say in the book, basically was one more of a vast proclamation and half-vast execution. Uh, so that you would, you would you'd go into Somalia, uh, to try to help the humanitarian. A few guys get killed and you get out. Uh, you ignore an, a, a, a genocide in, in Rwanda. You get into a war in Kosovo, but you don't get any closer than 40,000 feet. So it, it just seems to me that basically that was the, the basic syndrome. People were simply not, uh, people decided, particularly after Vietnam, that they didn't want to use, they still wanted to support the Cold War, but didn't want to use direct warfare to do so. Uh, what, what changed, it seems to me, was 9-11. And the two wars, the two most important wars, obviously, are Iran, Iraq, and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Afghanistan. And neither of them, I think, just about everybody agrees, would have taken place without 9/11. Uh, I argue in the book that both of those wars were really stupid, foolish, uh, ill-considered, and so forth. And obviously, uh, a huge number of people certainly agree with that now, after after 20 years and after the limping out of Afghanistan. And I suspect now we're in another syndrome. It's now called the Iraq syndrome or the Iraq-Afghanistan uh, syndrome. Uh, and there's just no desire to get into any kind of war. The, you know, why don't we go against Iran, uh, which everybody hates, in the Middle East? Well, they don't want to do another war in the Middle East, looking how badly those have turned out. Uh, a good case in point, in many respects, also goes about her question about partisanship. Um, at the time of uh, the uh, Russian incursion into Crimea in 2014, uh, a lot of Republicans were saying, you, we got to do something about this. And uh, Obama, who was president at the time, said, OK, you want to do war to get rid of this, to reverse this? If you do, stand up and say so. And the silence, needless to say, was deafening. So there is a desire, as uh, Martha puts it, to do something. 
uh, and frequently doing something is not a good idea, but using war seems to be becoming uh, decreasingly, uh, decreasingly likely. I think also intervening in civil wars probably is, is uh, going to decline after the disasters of Syria and, uh, and of Yemen. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens on that. Um, the, in general, uh, uh, Chris talks particularly about complacency and so forth. And it just seems to me that what we should, what a complacent person, well, let me give you where that comes from in some respects is from a statement by Calvin Coolidge, who said, anytime you see 10 problems coming down the street at you, chances are nine of them will go into the ditch before they get to you. And that still means you have, you know, one problem in 10 you have to deal with. Uh, but that's not a very bad philosophy. Um, and so I think in many respects, uh, what we're doing is worrying about thing, uh, worrying about Russia and China in particular, and I think exaggerating the degree to which these are important. Uh, both commentators talk about exaggerating threat, and I certainly agree. There's a lot in the book, looking backward at how, and I've done another job uh, uh, works looking at how, in retrospect, the threat has been exaggerated, including that of the Soviet Union during a military threat during World War during the Cold War. Um, so it, it just seems to me that. Uh, in many cases, uh, I think Chris said, uh, don't just stand there, don't, don't just do something, stand there. Um, and so I think that, that that's complacency. Basically, that problem is probably going to self-destruct. If it gets too close, they might have to do something. But the best thing is to let it happen. In many respects, the Soviet Union and China had self-destructed during the Cold War. It was not any, from any policy uh, from, from outside. So I see, it seems to me that's basically the way uh, things ought to go. Uh, and we ought to consider it. In the case of China, China's getting richer. Uh, why is that bad? I mean, they have, they have more stuff we can buy, just the more stuff we can sell to them. Maybe they can buy our debt. Um, they are obstreperous. We certainly don't like what's going on internally in terms of civil liberties, but we can't do very much about it uh, unless you want to start a war. And so why do you have to say you're going to do something. Why must you do something? Uh, also, Chris, as Chris pointed out, the idea that the United States has been the cause of this peace. I have a, bit, a big section in, toward the end of the book on Pax Americana. Uh, and it must be said, and it, should, it can't be said too often, that uh, the American foreign policy in the whole course of the century has been a disaster uh, military, mi militarily. Uh, the, the wars that were started have been fiascos, disasters. Uh, the number of people who have been killed in Iraq is now about a hundred, because of the American invasion, is about a hundred times larger than the number who died on 9-11, uh, something that should be repeated endlessly. So the military mostly is, is, you know, the American military has not done a very good job since World War II. Um, it has not won any wars except ones in which the war, the enemy was basically um, a, uh, uh, basically not there. Uh, you know, the comic opera wars like in Grenada and Panama, uh, and also in many respects in Kosovo and in the first Gulf War. The enemy basically didn't exist. Um, and uh, and, and it's, it showed itself to be an utter failure uh, currently. So um, it, it just seems to me that should, be, that should be brought up. So the two things are one, we, we're continuing inflating threat. We're doing it again. At least the Washington establishment is doing it again, particularly with respect to China. Uh, explain to me what the problem is and why that's such a big problem, and certainly why you have the slightest thinking that a military thing could do anything about it. 
Uh, the, the, China doesn't get bigger and bigger. It's probably going to get bigger, bigger military. Uh, but nonetheless, it's uh, it's uh, just going to continue. It's going to continue on. Uh, and you basically want to deal with it. If they're doing bad things, tell them. If you don't like the way they trade, don't trade with them. Um, that uh, you're not forced to do that. If you don't want them to take off your NBA games from their television, don't say nasty things about them because that's that's how they'll react. Uh, it really seems at that level. Just the final thing is that one of the problems with talking about international war, defined as war between states in which at least a thousand people are killed each year, uh, is going away. Is you get this reaction I got through my whole life, just the way uh, Chris has been saying, said, "Yeah, well, what about inequality in Af South Africa?" Um, in other words, uh, we got rid of this really big problem, but we got all these little problems, and then they get raised up in importance. Uh, if North Korea gets nuclear weapons, the world will come to an end. Really? Uh, why don't we think about that? Uh, so they, there's always problems, as I certainly admitted. There's always concerns. There's global things like global warming and pandemics and refugees and so forth. Uh, those will all, those will be there, and they and they can be worked with uh, in an international manner. So let me end on that, and then we can go to other questions. Thank you. Great. Uh, let me try and combine two questions, and I might do this inarticulately, but I'm going to do the best I can here. Uh, it's basically about Clausewitz's notion that war is a continuation of policy by other means. And I know there's contention about the quote and its origins for a long time, but uh, connecting this to Russia or China, particularly Russia's recent moves on the border of Ukraine, which I believe they actually pulled back today. Um, but the question is basically, how are we, are we going to control the instincts of those who might try to leverage war as a policy instrument to achieve coercive gains? Um, and, you know, this in some ways goes back to the Hitler question, too. Uh, how do we control the outliers? How do we control the individuals who are not riding with the rest of the tide? Well, they're troublemakers and they're things we don't like. Obviously, taking over Crimea uh, was a problem. Um, the uh, Russians keep hearing, yeah, well, how's that different from you know, segregating Kosovo off from Serbia in 1999? Um, and um, uh, if they, the, the key issue, it seems to me, is do Russia or China have Hitlerian ambitions? China does a little bit in terms of trying to take over Taiwan, but that's about it. They do not want to expand militarily. Uh, in, 19, in 2014, it was constantly said, well, Putin's next going to go after Lithuania or Estonia or something like that. Nothing like that happened. Moving troops around uh, uh, the, the, basically is, is uh, uh, something that one can do and one can signal with. Uh, frequently, it's counterproductive. Uh, most of the time, it's just not productive at all. Let me ask, uh, how do you interpret the the Biden pullout of Afghanistan? Do you think the United States has turned a corner or do you worry about our country as we move forward and its tendency for warfare? Well, I, I certainly support it. I did a paper with John Glazer at, um, at Cato about two years ago arguing we should get out of Afghanistan. Uh, John Mearsheimer, with whom I disagree on a lot of things, but on this, uh, he said, there's, there's no American national interest in Afghanistan. If the Taliban takes over, why is that the end of the world? Um, there are problems if it does. Uh, and and, and the, one, the, the big problem basically would be that the whole country would dissolve into civil war as it did after uh, the Soviet Union cut off aid uh, to the uh, 
post uh, to the, to the post, uh, after, after they withdrew from Afghanistan and then, then uh, uh, continued to send uh, to support the regime uh, financially. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, they cut off aid. And that's when this horrible civil war took place. But basically what Afghanistan and Iraq show that the American military simply can't win those kinds of wars. It's not terribly unusual. Uh, and in fact, the military in Afghanistan was once presented with a study, a military study, which said that nobody has ever won a insurgent war where the insurgents had a deep uh, uh, sanctuary area. Uh, that, that happened in Iraq. In many respects, they went to Iran. Uh, and it certainly happened, of course, in, in Afghanistan, where they went to Pakistan. The war was basically militarily hopeless. Uh, much of the resentment in that war was because the Americans were there. So the biggest biggest uh, calling card, uh, propaganda uh, statement for 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 the Afghan for the for the Taliban. Uh, so once they're gone, things may settle down. The United States is going to continue to support, as as John and I argued in that paper, continue to support Afghanistan uh, financially, uh, but just not militarily, and they'll have to get their act together. The hope is that the two sides eventually, it's not going to be easy, will work out some sort of partition overall. But the big danger is not the Taliban taking over, it seems to me, but if the whole country disintegrating into uh, uh, multi-sided, warlord-dominated uh, uh, civil war. So I'm getting a lot of questions of this style, and I'm going to kind of summarize it in one just you know, basic way from, I have this from Anonymous. Uh, but it could be, could it be that the form of war has changed, not war itself? And that in some ways goes to the classic military question on the Clausewitzian notion of has uh, the character of war changed, but not the nature of war. So what is your read on that issue and the future of conflict? Well, and what's the difference between the nature of war and the character of war? But um, what I'm arguing is that one kind of war, the kind that's the most storied and the most common, international war, war between organized states, seems to have be very much uh, uh, falling out of favor. Uh, civil wars have always been there. They're, they're somewhat in decline as well. There was a growth of them, particularly after decolonization in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, so it, the nature of, uh, the, the nature of uh, international war hasn't gotten any different. It just stopped to happen. Uh, there are interventions in civil wars. There are civil wars. Uh, there are uh, uh, covert military actions and so forth to remove a leader and so forth. Those will continue and have continued, uh, usually not very productively for the people instituting them. But the key thing is that the most important form of warfare, when it's storied uh, from for forever, interstate war is basically not happening any uh, much and maybe not at all. And that's my story. The fact that there are other bad things um, is uh, is uh, totally acknowledged. In many respects, the international community can try to reduce civil wars um, as well, instead of exacerbating them, which is what happened in both Yemen and Syria. We'll see if they get that message. So I'm getting a lot of questions um, of this nature, but basically the idea is, you know, what if we reduce our military by 90%? What if we become Costa Rica? are we not going to become enslaved by a foreign power, which is a legitimate question here. Um, 
Uh, also, I'm getting similar questions about, you know, did we pull out of South Korea? Um, so, you know, this goes to the heart of what we do at Cato and the foreign policy um, group. Uh, what do you think the course of future American foreign policy should be? Uh, how much should we go forward in supporting our allies? How much should we spend on military budgets? These are our core questions. So what is your response to these issues? Well, Chris may want to jump in on this as well. Um, it just seems to me it can be massively reduced. Uh, the United States is spending an octillion dollars on these things. To give you an example, just came across it a few days ago, uh, the, uh, the vaunted Belt and Road Initiative by the Chinese, which people find so threatening, its total budget is about the same as the total budget for building the F-25 fighter in the United States. That's the kind of massive overexpenditure we're doing. As Martha, I think, mentioned, uh, it's also the case if you have a military, there's a temptation to use it. Madeleine Albright also said something about that. So and Bernard Brody, my, my main guru over time, uh, said that a long time ago. Uh, one way of keeping people out of trouble is to take away the tools that get them into the trouble. Uh, and that, that may be the case. I have a section basically called hedging in the book. Uh, basically, we should probably keep some nuclear weapons in case for the wildly unlikely possibility of another of the rise of another Hitler. Uh, we should keep some for maybe peacekeeping operations uh, and uh, supporting allies in, in some areas or the, as they were supported uh, in, uh, in the case of getting rid of ISIS, for example, uh, air power in particular. Um, and so there's a, there's a few cases where you'd probably want to keep some forces. But insofar as interventions that might work, policing interventions under the United Nations, presumably, you don't need a, a huge number of troops maybe a few hundred or a few thousand at the most. And uh, so uh, I, I do, I'm not a pacifist in the sense of thinking that military uh, interventions can never work. Military intervention stopped the Kosovo, stopped the genocide in Rwanda. Um, it was, but it was not by the United States, but it was by some Tutsis uh, who put together a pretty effective government, uh, military by, by African standards. And we're finally able to end that. So there are times when uh, going in with force disciplined force against particularly thuggish opponents uh, makes some degree of sense. Uh, but it seems to me there's, there's, uh, and also what you want to do is keep a hedge in the sense of keeping a capacity for rebuilding um, if, if the things start to go really sour. As far as I can see, they're not going sour in that sense, and there's not any necessary, but you'd want to be able to do that uh, if, some, some, if some real rogue state really started to really threaten. Great. Did our panelists want to jump in and push John in any direction? I'll give you the opportunity. I'll, I'll just jump in fast for about 30 seconds because I, I talk about this notion in class all the time, international security classes, about what would happen if the United States greatly slashed its military budget? And you know, would the Canadians suddenly attack? Are they just waiting for us to put our guard down? Uh, it, it, one of the things that comes up all the time is the United States would lose influence around the world as if influence is an end, not a means. Influence is a means towards ends. And if you, it, it's no point in having influence if, you're not, if you don't know what to do with it or if you're not using it uh, on a daily basis. Uh, it's just a fun thing to think about in my view because I don't see exactly how we would be less safe, how would be, if we would be almost certainly more prosperous. Uh, and I don't know how we would be less free or somehow endangered. Would we be a slave to somebody? Who? Oh. Are the Chinese going to come over here? There's a great 1967 movie you can look up called Battle Beneath the Earth where the Chinese burrow under the Pacific and they pop out next to Las Vegas. 
Outside of that, the Chinese aren't coming over here. Uh, we would actually not be a slave and we would still be spending more. If we cut our budget by 90%, we'd still be spending a lot more than Vladimir Putin. So think about that. And just fun, what would actually, what would the world look like? It might be better. It's just something to, it's fun to think about. Certainly fun to talk about in class. Well, now I'm thinking I, about Godzilla and Kong and the hollow earth, <laughs> but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, Professor Kirchhoff? I just want to, I'm afraid, be the damper here. How do we get there? Sure, I'm willing to accept that with a much smaller military, we would be safer, safer. But how do we get from here to there? Yeah, it, it, it's a really big problem. I don't know. Uh, spending time at Cato, i.e. in Washington, uh, it makes me more and more impressed by the, the, the uh, effect of that. Essentially, you've got a military which reaches high levels of acceptance in public opinion polls. It's very much trusted. Well, it's, it's had policies of abject failure for 20 years now, or longer probably. Uh, you know, it was not able to solve the problem in Iraq, not able to solve the problem in Afghanistan, anything remotely resembling a, um, uh, uh, an acceptable cost. Uh, and in fact, the United States military has been the greatest source of, of disruption uh, since uh, since since uh, in, in this entire century, uh, they talk about Ch China uh, fiddling around. The Chinese come back, yeah, but we didn't start those wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, or in Libya, another big huge failure. Um, in that case, by the Obama administration. So um, it, it, so it, um, people constantly saying to the military, "Thank you for your service," and my answer to that is, "Why don't you ask them sometime?" You ask yourself sometime, are you being served? Uh, would we have been better off during this time? In the case of the military, obviously, if we had no military, we couldn't have gotten into Vietnam. And a couple million people would not be dead now, uh, or dead at that time. Uh, if we didn't have a military, we couldn't have gone into uh, Afghanistan. If we didn't have a military, we couldn't have gone into Iraq. That would have been a lot better off. Uh, we've, we've basically uh, just massively disrupted those countries. Uh, created a huge amount of death and destruction and refugees and um, and basically inflicted massive disasters on the Middle East. Middle East is unstable and, un and problematic anyway, but the United States has, if anything, made it even worse. So let me ask one last question as we wrap up, because we're just about out of time. Uh, I love this question. John Madfis asks, um, I've been a supporter of Cato for decades. I'm a political activist running on all the organization's cause, writing letters, meeting with congressional representatives. But what can an individual do to help end this horrible cycle of war besides supporting peace groups? So, John, what do you recommend for the individual? Well, uh, keep supporting Cato, I guess. Uh, there, there is a growing uh, force within uh, Washington, Defense Priorities and the Quincy Institute, for example, which are basically on this, on this wavelength. Um, and in many respects, this is a good time to strike because people are so, so, so exhausted from these endless wars in the Middle East. So talking peace at this time is likely to say it worked pretty well. And for the most part, politicians um, see that on both sides of the aisle. They're not willing to go into use war to get Russia out of Crimea. They're not willing to uh, use war to stop Iran, whatever it is. Uh, so in some respects, it's maybe a propitious time. Uh, to make your voice heard. Uh, but I don't know whether it's going to undercut 
the uh, huge amount of uh, support that the military gets. On the other hand, if it is not doing anything, all it's doing is, is wasting money. It's not killing people. So maybe that's an improvement. We'll have to see. Okay, great. Well, this is a wonderful event. John has dispelled a, uh, distilled a lot of information in a short amount of time. But I do recommend that everyone pick up the book. It's a wonderful book. It's a great book. It's a stellar achievement in his career. Uh, this event recording will be available for some time. Um, so please check it out if you missed the entirety of the event. And with that, um, I'm just going to end this um, event and just say we'll, we'll see you next time. We'll, we'll keep working. Thank you.